Hi, my name is Jackson Darby. I'm an artist and musician currently based in Hamilton, Ontario. I play in a band called Persons, and I work in a studio art space called Casino. That's it. <laughs> All right. Cool. I'm Marcus Wilson. You're listening to Into This. The show where I interview people in the arts, just about everything. This is episode number eight, first episode of 2018. 2018 already. It's insane. It's been eight years since I've moved to Montreal from Mexico and man, that feels really fast. And it's funny because lately, every time I come back to Montreal from wherever I travel to, the officers at the airport, they greet me saying, welcome back home. <laughs> And that trips me because I don't know where home is anymore. Is it here? Is it there? I don't know. Maybe that's a rite of passage for an immigrant. I don't know. Anyways, let's go back to it. So this is episode number eight. Musician and visual artist Jackson Darby. Jackson is a creator of the band Persons. They are an experimental music band based in Hamilton in Ontario. And they have been playing everywhere this year. I saw them twice in Montreal, and man, they put on a great show. There's a lot of energy in the band, there's intriguing compositions, and it's great. So they were nice enough to let me use their music all over this episode. So this in the background, that's Persons. Besides his music practice, Jackson is also a painter. And at the time of this interview, he and some of his artist friends we're running an alternative art space called Casino back in Hamilton. They have recently decided that Casino will no longer exist as a physical space. But the plan is to continue to organize shows as a satellite art space, which means that they are no longer bounded to one space. Uh, they can organize shows everywhere, basically. And, you know, these closures happen all the time uh, with art spaces for different reasons. Of course, money is most of the time at the center of these decisions, but also, I don't know, people move away or, I don't know, objectives change. In this case, Jackson told me that the core members who do most of the event organizing, curating and administration are all moving in different directions and that they feel that it's no longer essential to have casino exist as a space. They learned a lot while they were doing it and they're happy. So. Jackson went to art school in Montreal, and while he was doing that, he was a member of an art collective called MA, M-A-W, MA. As a collective, they had solo shows and galleries around Montreal, like CK2, Parisian Laundry, etc. So in this interview, we talk about persons, we talk about MA, we talk about casino, and we talk about a lot more things. So without further ado, here's me and Jackson. Thanks for listening. So uh, how long do you live in Montreal for? Uh, I lived here for seven years. Uh-huh. You went to school here, yeah? I went to school here. I went to Concordia University for five years. Right. And I lived here two years after that. Where do you grow up? I grew up in East End Toronto, and I went to high school in like a an area more downtown Toronto. Okay. Uh, I made the commute to go to a, an arts high school. Arts high school. So yeah. that's like only art in that high school? Not only art, but uh, they had like specialized programs that you could apply to get into. Okay. And what kind of art do you choose in high school? Um, I quote unquote majored in uh, music. Okay. I played bass at the time and I played bass in like the high school band. Right. 
And uh, it was pretty unique at that high school. They offered like classes in like experimental music and stuff like that. And also uh, like non-traditional art forms. And so at that pretty uniquely uh, young age, I think, I was able to learn about like John Cage and like John Zorn, like contemporary, like experimental uh, musicians and artists like that. Um, and I even learned about uh, like contemporary visual artists like Gordon Meadow Clark and like Joseph Boyce and Chris Burden. Right. People that actually had like a pretty long, uh, like lasting impact on me. Cool. Is that the beginning, though, of your music interest, or it comes from from before? High no, uh, I didn't initially go to an arts high school. I started down a different path. Uh, originally, being really into sports, actually, um, and I applied to get into this sports school, and that's where I realized that I kind of really didn't identify with a lot of people that played sports or the people I was surrounded by anyway. Right. And I was always kind of into music, but I wasn't, had actually started making music during that time. But I was always hearing about this other art school. And anyways, by the time I got there in like my second year of high school, it felt kind of like a utopia in comparison. Oh, really? And it was like, wow, like all these kids are like in bands and like people are like making paintings and whatever. Uh, yeah, it was like I found my home. And after that, I actually had a pretty positive high school experience, which is rare, I think, for a lot of kids. I mean, that sounds pretty young for you to be making all those really mature decisions. Was there somebody there, you know, helping you out in the process of, okay, so maybe this is not for you? I mean, you know. It was very uh, evident to me. I think okay. I even, when I was seeking out the sports school, part of me, Part of my attraction to that was because I knew that I needed to get out of the school mm -hmm. that I was in. Mm -hmm. I knew that I didn't really identify with the people I was surrounded by, but I just didn't quite know where I needed to be at that point. Right. Uh, and then it was uh, just like an ongoing like sort of learning process. And then when I landed where I landed, it, it really felt right. But I was kind of, I was always doing music, like I... Uh, Started doing music when I was like 13, mostly just like making beats like on my parents' computer. Okay. <laughs> um, but I was kind of like secretive about it at the time. Okay. How come? I was I was nervous and like embarrassed or something. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, so your family is not musical. No, my family is very musical. Actually, I was I was very lucky to grow up in like a pretty uh my parents aren't uh and aren't artists or musicians but they're very supportive of the arts mm -hmm. and were very supportive of me uh when i was choosing to get into the arts which I, i'm lucky for um and there was always a lot of music in my house and and w when i started djing and sampling records and stuff that's actually that was the source of a lot of my early beats I was making were oh, samples cool. from like my dad's collection. That's pretty cool. And when finally did you show them? Uh, actually, I think it was when I needed to prove to them that I needed to change schools. It oh, was okay. like, 
look, I, I know I don't belong here. Look at this album I made. Yeah. Clearly, I need to go to this place where yeah. other people are doing this, too. For sure. And uh, they were like, whoa, you, like, you made, made that? this? <laughs> <laughs> While we were out of the house? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I had to be super quick. <laughs> yeah, um, actually. Uh, let me go back to something. Uh, what sport? What sport do you, do you practice? Uh When I was really young, I played all kinds of sports, but I kind of uh, stuck with lacrosse. It kind of uh -huh. became my uh, focus, yeah. Right. And so, there was a time when I thought I was going to be a professional lacrosse player okay. when I grew up. Is there a professional league in Canada? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. But uh, it's not that popular. Right. Uh, and they don't make much money, but there is. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Toronto Rock. Oh, that's, that's the team? That's the team. Yeah. So were you good? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I was pretty sure. good. I was yeah. like uh, the captain or assistant captain on my team. Okay, okay. Multiple years. Sure. Um, yeah, I had a lot of promise as an athlete, but I really just really did not identify with the culture surrounding it. Like what exactly? Like, do, Can you pinpoint some things? Uh, just like the sort of macho attitude. Uh -huh. um really competitive. I, I don't think that I'm a very competitive person by nature. Um, and I was, the things that I was really passionate about, um, nobody else that I was surrounded by cared about. And about the sport or, or in general? No, stuff? about, yeah, about, about music and art oh, that okay. I was uh, sort of pursuing in, at that time in the background. Yeah. Uh, but was increasingly becoming more and more my focus. Right. There is that thing of, um, you know, when you like something, but you don't know if you're good or not at something, but it's also the flip side when it's that you are good at something, but at the end of the day, you probably don't like it that much. Yeah. You know? I mean, that I, I think I liked it because I was uh -huh. pretty naturally Able. good at it. Yeah. And I was capable yeah. of doing it well, yeah. uh, but it just w wasn't for me. No. Right. Um, lacrosse is an interesting sport mm -hmm. because, as we were saying, it has very interesting roots in the Canadian culture. Yeah. Like, were you thinking about that stuff when you were playing it? Um, no, mm -hmm. not at all. And uh, that's something I've actually been thinking about a lot uh, in recent times, especially with uh, my new series of paintings I've been working on. My most recent day job was uh, working on archaeological excavations, and uh, we were digging up pre-contact indigenous artifacts. Where? All throughout southern Ontario. Okay. And uh, we would engage with uh, local indigenous communities and groups who would have monitors on site to make sure that we were conducting proper archaeology. And... Uh, I got to meet and befriend a lot of people that lived on the reserve and sort of learn about what their life was like. Throughout that experience, it kind of made me really start to think a lot about my Canadian identity and what it means to be Canadian. And I started thinking a lot about the relationship between my past as like a lacrosse player mm -hmm. and appropriated native sport and my more recent experiences as an archaeologist, I think there's like a pretty unique dialogue there. It kind of made me start to think about um, 
my own sort of skewed identity as Canadian with like mixed European heritage. You know, mm -hmm. I'm very much out of touch with the like eight different countries or whatever that my ancestors came from. I'm I'm like, you know, Irish, English, uh, Scottish, Ukrainian, and so on. <laughs> um, and I'm not really in touch with any one of those cultures. And growing up in Toronto, I kind of grew up being exposed to a lot of different cultures because it's a very multicultural city, which I feel lucky for. But it also means that I sort of got like a surface level skimming of a lot of cultures. Yes. And oftentimes, especially like as a kid, sort of being fed like these distorted mainstream ideas about cultures that, you know, would give me like a East Side Mario's like idea of what it is to be Italian. I understand. Or like yeah. a, a Mr. Greek idea of what it is to be a, from, from Greece. Greece. Yeah. And these are kind of ideas that have been explored in the past and with the uh, Ma Collective work, mm -hmm. uh, like in the show Fetaphysics, but also more recently in my personal practice. Yeah, and so lacrosse sort of, to go full circle with that, lacrosse is often considered to be Canada's national sport. Yeah. And the irony of that, of course, is that the people whose ancestors created this sport often a lot of them don't even identify as Canadian and, in fact, have been treated with absolute disrespect by Canadians for the past 500 years. Um, so what does that mean then to call myself Canadian? And what are, like, what are the broader implications of, of that? Yeah, so that goes into the work that you're doing right now. Yeah. In painting, but also in music. Is that uh, right? More so it was my painting practice. Yeah. What is exactly what you're trying to, to address with your work that is happening now? It's, you know, a whole, a whole lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Not many answers. <laughs> uh, there are these sort of visual relics at the end of this whole sort of identity crisis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and a clashing of my childhood and adult life where these similar themes keep coming up. Yeah. In retrospective, everything is, looks easier, right? To identify mm -hmm. or to pinpoint. So what are the things that you mostly uh, realize now that you didn't realize back then when you were growing up? Um, well, a lot of it, I think, just has to do with the general consciousness around a lot of representation and people just sort of owning up to their history and just like acknowledging one's privilege. Yeah. And uh, I'm doing my best to sort of do that. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and in the process of doing that, reflecting on a lot of my own identity. Yeah. We're talking about Canadian identity. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about in terms of art, if there's something called Canadian style. Is there anything like that that you can identify quickly? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely contemporary trends, but 
none of them are quite like definitive enough in my opinion to be labeled as like Canadian aesthetics. But something I kind of come back to a lot is the first like sort of generally accepted uniquely Canadian art group, the group of seven, Mm -hmm. um, which has become in my practice sort of like a tongue-in-cheek way of making reference to like identifiable Canadian aesthetics. Okay. So like a lot of my uh, paintings over the past couple years will start with just like a super crude, uh, reductive, often childish landscape, you know, like green on the bottom, blue on top. And then I do, I paint the actual content on top of that. Right. Um, But for me, that sort of acts as a way of like situating myself within an art historical context. Okay. And just like grasping on to like whatever identity is there and people might recognize, but in like a a sort of jokey way. Yeah, but I mean, it's still a, a frame of reference. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people, when they think of like mm-hmm. landscape painting, like everyone accepts that as like nice art. And so to sort of flip that on its right. on its head and just paint it really badly is uh, kind of a funny subversion to me. Interesting. Um, you're a pretty young artist and you are experimenting different things, right? Say that if you could zoom out in your career, that you can see your past and your present, what kind of direction would you like to take at this point? What are your plans right now? Um, Well, over the past couple years, when the collective I was in, Ma Collective, has been sort of less active, I feel like I've been sort of regaining touch with my personal practice again, whereas I sort of lost touch with it during the time when we were really active. And so with my last solo show, it was the first time I sort of found a marriage between uh, my newer painting practice and my older uh, like sound experiments and like performance art experiments. And uh, that was the first time for me that they really came together in a cohesive way. And so now I'd sort of like to expand on that and sort of keep trying to find a way that merges these different practices in an effective way that doesn't seem forced. For sure. I was also wondering, how do you keep your ideas rolling when you are working with how many more people? Four more people? Uh, in Ma Collective? Yeah, in Ma Collective. There are six in six. total. Yeah, six in total. So five more and you. So is there a way to keep your your artistic uh, ideas rolling the same way? Or you had to stop thinking individually and say, okay, so let's see what the group is doing. Like, how does that work? How is that dynamic? I think we had a pretty unique dynamic. We all live together and we're working on art separately but really organically started uh, like giving each other our two cents on one another's pieces. And we, we started working as a unit unintentionally. It just kind of happened. And because of that, I think we started thinking similarly. And it was pretty effortless to uh, come up with ideas. And usually if there was any sort of disagreement about a concept or anything, all it took was 
that person to explain themselves and then we'd all kind of be like, oh, yeah, I get mm-hmm. it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was pretty unique in that way, I think. Yeah. We are, uh, yeah, really able to seamlessly work together and think as a, as a unit. We all kind of knew as well, like, that we had a Ma aesthetic. And while we might individually make work that is in some ways comparable, when we're working as Ma, we're making work that looks like Ma. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's super special because think of any situations when you have to weigh like somebody else's opinion in something that you want to do. It, there's always, always like, you know, issues or like, you know, I don't want to say problems, but like, yeah, there's like, you know, disagreements. And for a group to work that, you know, seamlessly, that sounds pretty special. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So do you think that there was a a factor of being in a collective that gave you more exposure? That's also a thing. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean... When you're one person, you have your strengths and weaknesses. And when you're six people where you have weaknesses, somebody else in that group is going to make up for them. Mm. And, you know, somebody might not be a skilled welder, but somebody else in the group is. Right. You know, I have a background in working with sound, whereas the others have less of that. And so in that way, creates like a sort of powerhouse. Why do you think that no more people do that? Why don't you think that there's more collectives? I think it's hard to find people that you get mm-hmm. along with mm-hmm. in, in that way, especially when you're dealing with conceptual art. Mm-hmm. People get really attached to their ideas. I, concepts and ideas are really like personal things. So if somebody's telling you that they don't think your idea is good or something, you know, that can get ugly fast. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I meant, yeah. Um I guess, so, yeah, I guess it's a very special combination then. Yeah. Now, I don't know how to approach this without being super direct. There were like six people, six men, six white men. Yes. So how do you think that influenced into the uh, perception of, of the collective from the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people were very critical of it, uh-huh. and rightfully so, I think. It was something that we would attempt to address in perhaps too subtle of ways. I mean, from my perspective, hard to speak for the whole collective. Yeah. From my point of view, sort of uh, play up like the manliness of it, like as a joke, sort of poking fun at our own yeah. masculinity. Yeah. And also making art that was very, yeah, playful and often like things that a child might imagine sort of to like downplay ourselves or something yeah yeah I don't know. <laughs> no i mean that's a tough one that's what i said like it's it's not easy because you know you never know how those things happen it's not like probably it's not like you guys sat together and said hey, you know we're just gonna choose these specific people let's not consider anybody else for this you know what i mean yeah no not I'm at pretty all. sure that didn't happen though Whole, like I said earlier, like the whole thing came together very organically. Mm-hmm. There was no intention of starting yeah. an art collective. Yeah, we just lived all in the same building, and it kind of just happened. Yeah. In in terms of cultural differences or similarities, in this case, that plays a role probably very like without you really noticing. You guys like 
you get along just probably because you share a lot more than with other people. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Mm, I don't know. I'm But just I'm just guessing here. Perhaps that yeah. makes uh makes for a sort of one-dimensional mm -hmm. point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I uh yeah, totally understand. Yeah. Uh criticisms of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to one to really acknowledge the privilege that everybody has. Like we all have some sort of I mean, not everybody, right? I mean, we can talk about that for a long time, but, you know, people say here in Canada, we do have a lot of privileges. Um, but it's pretty hard to decide what is a good thing to do to show that you are grateful for it. You know, like what kind of things do you do, you know? Like yeah. what do you get involved into, you know, what, what kind of things? Yeah, well, it's something I think about a lot and have struggled with a lot, especially making art and music when white males have been dominating art history and the music industry for long enough, <laughs> uh, in my opinion. So then what am I adding to it? How am I, what am I doing to like level up the playing field? Okay. Um, and so I guess my most current way of doing this because it's an ongoing learning process for me just trying to navigate the art world responsibly my newest project uh will be something similar actually to what we're doing right here i'm gonna be doing a series of interviews okay and i'm gonna be discussing topics uh relevant to different artists practices but also topics that are relevant to Uh, the city that I live in in Hamilton, a big part of the dialogue there right now is the drastic redevelopment that's going on. Right. But again, just like representation in communicative media and uh, things like that. Uh, and just like, yeah, thinking of other ways that I can use my skill and my my resources to directly engage Because I don't necessarily think that art is always the best way uh, to confront these issues. Yeah, that's funny you say because in the episode that I had with uh, Nicolas Grenier, he was saying that he doesn't trust so much art being so powerful to change things by itself. Yeah. So that there are some other things that artists do, you know, some more practical things, some projects that are more immediately applicable, I guess. Yeah. Like um, a lot of what makes a successful art piece to me is uh, a certain level of ambiguity and being able to for it to be interpreted in different ways by different people. I think that's interesting and I think that's powerful in some ways, but I don't think that it's necessarily the best way to get a political message across. Yeah. Not to mention the small amount of people that you're going to reach through the contemporary art world. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, chances are a lot of those people already share the same views as you in the first place. Sure. I mean, that, that's the whole idea of the uh, echo chamber, right? Right. Everybody shares the same idea so that it resonates really loud. Yeah. But when you look, like zoom out, then you realize that it's probably very small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from there to take it to the next level, then I guess... Like you would have to become sort of like an activist or get involved in politics, mm -hmm. you know, like, is that anything that you have thought in the past? I mean, 
I'm active to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I go to demonstrations and I try to be as informed as possible. Yeah. But it is definitely like uh, something that I've thought about a lot. Like I spend so much of my time making art. Yeah. What else could I be doing yeah. that would have a much more direct impact? Well, what I can see though is that you also have another way to directly address people, which is with your music. People are more used to receiving the message from from music than with yeah. a piece, right? So is that something that you are also interested to like include these ideas into your music or yeah. in your music practice? I guess. Yeah, yeah, and for sure I I do that. Um, and a lot of the lyrics that I've included in my most recent music have been more politically engaged, but also I've just been trying to collaborate more mm-hmm. and use the beats that I make as sort of like a platform for other people to voice their experiences mm-hmm. and their ideas. Right. And that's partially what I'm doing with the project Persons, which mm-hmm. is my main musical project right now. But I, I'm also interested in collaborating with uh, a slew of other artists, especially people with uh, voices who aren't as heard as mine. Right. How long have you been working in this project, Persons? Well, it started four years ago or so, but under a different name. It was called Nick Persons at the time, and it was a solo project, just just me. And it originally was uh, instrumental music and uh, very jarring and sort of sound collage And with the release of the second album called Depart, I started introducing my vocals mm-hmm. into the picture. And that's when I started experimenting with uh, the vocal effects that sort of became uh, the Nick Person's character okay. that I continue to play now on stage anyway. You were telling me before off mic that you tried your natural voice. You tried your own voice. Yeah, all in some I mean, before. All up until that point, basically, um, with a few years break, but all through my teenagehood, I used my natural voice and never felt really comfortable with it. Right. I'm going to love listening back to this interview later. <laughs> uh, Tell me about it. <laughs> I hate my voice, too. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the the project continued to develop, and I started playing live shows with uh, my friend Sam, who goes by DJ Choosy. At that point, we started playing shows with live drums and keyboard and samplers and stuff. It continued to develop, and when we moved to Hamilton, uh, Sam and I lived in a house with uh, my partner Katie and our good friend Benita, and... Our other friend, uh, Danielle, also at the time, the five of us started doing shows together. And everyone else other than Sam and I at the time were mostly uh, like not just dancers because they were so much more. They were like vibe setters. Uh-huh. They uh, brought so much energy. And uh, very organically, they just sort of started having vocal parts. And then Danielle moved away and... So Sam, Katie, Benita, and I kept doing our thing, and it sort of evolved into what it is now, where mm-hmm. everyone sort of has an equal part um, in the live performance, yes. and behind the scenes, I kind of 
make it happen. So like you mean the music, making the music? I make all the music and uh, we all do the vocals together, I guess. Right. So you all write together? No, everyone uh, writes their own lyrics and brings brings their own lyrics to the table. And in fact, it's rare to have all of us in a room recording at the same time. Right. So how, and I think this is like a super tacky question, but how do you like identify the music and the shows that you put? How would you categorize the music that you guys play? Um, I always struggle with that question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to give like a, like a, very a super narrow, long or, or, yeah. uh, uh, like subgenre that sounds super pretentious. I can tell you that uh, our main influences are like disco and hip hop and house. Right. Um, but really, we're trying to do something that's new. I was going to say that because I've I've seen you guys now twice live, and sure that you can see those influences, but. I cannot really tell you like, oh yeah, it sounds like disco, you know? I've been struggling with the idea of like saying something new because it's really hard to get something new these days. But what I mean is like, you know, putting together things, you can create something, you know, different yeah. than the main well, source. Even if like one of our tracks might sound like a typical house track, mm-hmm. in combination with the rest of the album or the rest of our live set, doesn't seem like that anymore because it's been skewed by all of the other genres that are tossed in. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one thing that I've thought about a lot uh, is the social and political implications of like sample-based music practices, which is what I do. That's how I make uh, my music. I take little snippets of other people's music and mash them up, affect them, juxtapose them on top of each other, whatever. Do all kinds of things, add my own instruments. Um, and there's often been like a, a discourse around uh, sampling as a problematic uh, art form in the context of copyright infringement. And there's always been artists getting sued and whatever. But something that's always been ignored or that I've never seen talked about is like what it means for somebody, for example, like me, white male, what does it mean for me to take a sample from a song made by a black woman or something like that? You know, what is what does that imply? And is that okay even? what gives me the right to just sort of take ownership over these things. Hmm. And what does it mean also if you take, for example, like a song, like a, I don't know, whatever, like a a Northern Soul track and put it over like a Gregorian chant or something, you know? Like what, if you look at the histories of those two musics, where do they intersect in in time and in what context did those uh, two different kinds of music happen right yeah what does that mean <laughs> so how do you how do you make sense of you for example i'm gonna ask you that question so yeah. how do you make sense you taking say a snippet of sharon jones for your stuff big fan by the way yeah Sorry, a couple yeah. years ago yeah me too and <laughs> sorry that she died this yeah. last year 
Yeah, very yeah. sad. Yeah. But yeah, so then exactly, you know, that's like an intense thing that yeah. happened. And so then if I took that sample, well, for me, I try to be conscious of certain things and I have my own sort of boundaries um, with certain things that I will and will not sample. And in fact, my practice has been leaning towards using less samples. And when I do use them, they're much less recognizable usually. Mm. But uh, something that I did um, with the release of the last person's album, which was just like sort of my way of at least uh, trying to be transparent about the practice, was that I released a list of all the samples. uh, And I released a DJ mix of all of the samples of all the songs that I sampled um, so that you could kind of listen to this mm. to the songs and then mm-hmm. listen to what I did with them and be like oh cool and then that's also a way of um, acknowledging acknowledging yeah. them and then giving them exposure as well because right. I know I discovered a lot of music like that when I was younger and when I was really into hip hop I that's kind of what opened up the world of music to me was looking into who sampled what. Yeah. But that was like a lot of research yeah. at the time because it was pretty secretive. Right. And is there a legal uh, issue with this stuff? I mean, like yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't make enough money for anyone to care. Right. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, yeah. One, usually if you get to a certain level yeah. and you're represented by a label, then they will deal with that. Yeah. Or they'll be like, stop using so many samples. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we can release your music. Right. Or we can make that for you or something. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, that's just uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot because it's such a, an important part of the way that I make music. It's the way I started making music in the very beginning. And because I grew up listening to music that was sample-based music, yeah. it felt like really natural and I never really questioned it. Yeah, but I'm going to make a parallel here with, for example, a painting. Mm-hmm. Music because of the nature of it, and then you take a sample from this specific song, then you know that. But in a painting, you see any other painting that you like and that you feel influenced by and you also put it in your in your painting in your own painting and who yeah. says anything about it yeah well sometimes people do say stuff oh yeah like yeah um and that happens in music too when you right. know, if it's not a direct sample right you know people often criticize well i, I mean it usually happens where white artists are stealing the s- style of uh black artists right in North America, that's what happens anyway. Right. Um, and you often hear people like criticize Elvis, for example. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard that criticism of, are you really the king of rock and roll? Yeah, when he was just <laughs> playing music that was already being, <laughs> yeah, or the style in the style of anyway. Right, right. Um, but, and I agree that there's like a lot of, uh, a lot to be talked about there, but it's just less direct. It's it's mm-hmm. more comparable, I think, to like a collage. Sure. And a collage made up of yeah. other people's like Images. photography, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. It's it's different because yeah, it's so direct and it's not the same as like making up 
um, a collage of images that were never meant to be art either. Yeah. So, so what is the alternative for you? Well, I'm sort of already exploring the alternative, which is just using less samples. That's it. <laughs> so you're just making your own but then, beats? Yeah, and okay. playing my, more of my own instruments or skewing the samples and affecting them so much that they're not recognizable. Uh-huh. But then, I mean, it, you could get more deep into this and say, well, like, the styles of music that I'm exploring yeah. are also appropriated. Right, and then you get into appropriation of cultures and appropriation of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, I don't know. <laughs> it it is super tough. All these all these uh, topics, really. I mean, just because. Yeah, I can't. There's really... not a clear narrative, which is one is the correct thing to do either, you know. No. But I think one of the most important aspects that we probably haven't been acknowledging in all this conversation is that you are aware. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I mean that's the first step of any change. Like, how do you do it otherwise? Yeah. And and also, I think, um, acknowledging uh, where you are getting your source material and your influences. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's tough. No, it's really really, tough. No, for sure, it's really tough. Well, because, I mean, ultimately, like, if I decided to like really live all of these things that I'm criticizing, I would just would have, I would just stop making music. Yeah. Uh, if I wasn't going to play any music that wasn't originally like uh, from a different culture, like uh, maybe I would like learn the Scottish bagpipes or something. No, no, I, <laughs> I, I understand that. Yeah. It's like, like people, for example, when they, Talk about how terrible, which, yeah, I, I agree with that, how terrible, for example, a corporation like Walmart is. They, they go to countries and they, you know, don't treat fairly everybody anyways. And then you say, okay, I'm going to stop buying Walmart. But then you have no idea that when you go to the partner, you're <laughs> already participating of the system, you know, because they probably bought this stuff in Walmart or something <laughs> like that, you know what I mean? And so... Yeah. Avoiding that narrative of like sharp sort of like opinions, that I think is healthy too, because you, I mean, everything is really like interconnected mm -hmm. with everything. You never know where yeah. things are coming from really anymore. Totally. You know? So, I mean, pff, tough, <laughs> <laughs> tough one. <laughs> but, but again, yeah, just like posing these questions and starting like a, yeah discourse and a dialogue about these kinds of things I think is really important. For sure. For sure. Um, what do you want to happen with persons in terms of band evolution? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I want to keep just doing what we're doing and uh, continue to play shows, experiment with integrating other media, experimenting even more with projections and like uh, we've been really lucky in Hamilton playing at uh, this space called Haven where they're it's a like DIY artist venue they've been really great at helping facilitate 
pretty crazy shows where we go in earlier, film video footage in there and like decorate the space and really try to play with people's perception of time. And uh, so I, I would like to get deeper into those kinds of explorations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is harder to do when we're like on the road and, and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Cool. Keep doing what we're doing. Record new material. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, last Friday, you had a really interesting show at uh, Fairmount Theater. Yeah. Was that your biggest uh, venue so far? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, biggest venue of that kind, like nightclub. Right. And how was that experience? Uh, it was great. Overall, yeah. yeah. Uh, we went on first, so, you know, smaller crowd. Sure. But the other acts were great. and uh, Now your act was great. <laughs> yeah, we can say that. It was pretty nice. It was really cool. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't want to sound like a fine boy, but I truly <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> um, what's going on in Hamilton? How is uh, life there? Hamilton is in a pretty uh, unique position right now, I think. It's undergoing some pretty heavy uh, redevelopment and gentrification. Mm-hmm. And so myself and my group of friends, most of us are newcomers to the city who moved there as artists. We're pretty self-conscious about uh, our role in the cycle of gentrification. Which yeah. is what? Like, Which, how do you see? Well, it? well, yeah. it's it's very blatant in this case that they're using the presence of artists and art to sort of rebrand neighborhoods and develop them and displace the people who have been there for decades, families that have been there forever. Yeah, and then at some point, do you think that that would happen to artists too? Well, yeah, and then that's the mm. irony of it. Yeah. The people who were the sort of the crutch for mm. the redevelopment in the end get pushed out themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess um, the rents go really, they, they get really expensive. Yeah, artists are low-income residents as well, mm. typically. So they look for cheap rent and often like big warehouse spaces and stuff that they can use as studios, and that's what we've found in Hamilton. And I find myself pretty endlessly self-conscious about that and try to do the best that I can. And the group that I'm a part of called Casino there, which is the name of our gallery and studio space, we just try to, you know, not isolate ourselves from the community that we exist in, try Mm -hmm. to engage with it and become a part of it instead of just being, you know, plopped in the middle and nobody benefits from us in any way and then we initiate something that in turn ends up displacing them yeah so how do you do that uh well at casino art space we've been we really make an effort to promote events to the local community we show contemporary artists from around canada but then also local artists who don't necessarily have like a background in contemporary art or an education from the university, like our last show uh, was called Chuck, and it was a painter who's been painting for decades and has hardly shown anybody his paintings. 
And little did he know, I think, how relevant they were in like in a contemporary context. Wow. And so the the exhibition acted both as a retrospective and a debut, which is pretty unique. And it brought out so many local residents into our space, which I think is is pretty special. How do you find him? Uh, he lives across the alley oh. from our studio. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and one of the casino members, uh, Gabriel, was just talking with them, and he was like, "Oh, you guys have an art studio? Like, I'm an artist too." And he was like, "Oh, cool. Can I see?" Yeah. <laughs> and they were amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I've heard stories like that. I've heard stories of people who died, and then they go to their houses and they find out that they're like super prolific artists and nobody knew ever yeah that's really yeah interesting. so but he was uh thrilled and he sold a bunch of his paintings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really oh. do you hear that there's a delay now yeah just <laughs> check hello how many artists compose casino well there are around 15 artists that work in the space but they're sort of like a core group of founding members who mostly do the curation and event organizing. Um, but the way that it works is like anybody who has a studio there can be as involved or not as they want to be in like the process yeah. um, of putting on events or, or whatever. But it, it tends to be a group of like, yeah, six or seven right. of us. In your experience now, so far as an artist, you know that there are some artists that can sustain their practice solely just working in arts, right? Like just working in their work and they probably sell it. Uh, how do you think of that? What is your relationship with commercial, I don't want to say commercial art, but like going into the commercial space and also keeping your practice in check, not just aiming for one specific market. How is that relationship of artists with that kind of stuff yeah I mean I really personally don't feel uh, willing to like compromise my my vision to to try to sell anything and I don't even really feel comfortable when my my work exists in like a context like that I don't really want my art to have like a price tag on it mm. mind you it has because you know gotta pay bills and stuff exactly but uh i i also think that it's a pretty privileged position to make the choice to not compromise your artistic integrity yes. you know yes. i come from like a middle class background i've never had to worry about food on the table you know yeah and because of that security I'm able to make the decision. Basically, I'm, I've chosen to live a hard lifestyle where, you know, I don't make much money. I've chosen to be broke on a daily basis because of I've chosen to go into art. And not a, a lot of people feel comfortable making that decision, uh, especially people who come from lower income uh, situations. Sure, but there's a a thing that is the return on investments, right? So sometimes that doesn't mean economic benefits. Sometimes that means that you will be doing what, exactly what you want to be doing. So you yeah, are yeah. basically investing into all the you know economical benefits that you are not getting in one side for not you know 
uh, for doing exactly what you want to be doing, right? So yeah. it's like it's it's one for the other sometimes, and I, I guess like this is like a really wide topic about you know what makes you happy, what <laughs> you want, and all that stuff. But in general, almost all the artists that I know that are young and starting you know their careers, almost everybody has a day job. Yeah, right? yeah, and most of them are gonna have to keep those day jobs. Yeah, in your experience, <laughs> that what happens. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the time, sometimes the day jobs take over, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing either. Right. I myself have been thinking. I mean, I'll never stop doing art, but I might at one point try to make my day job more interesting. Sure, <laughs> sure. No, yeah, for sure. I've been thinking about going back to school for social work. Actually. Okay, okay. Um, thinking. Yeah, and so, no, but I'm, I'm not surprised that you're thinking about, you know, something else that is absolutely in tune with, you know, having a social cause. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I'm really interested in using my background in art absolutely. Uh, to engage with social issues or... Uh, work with at-risk youth. Or yeah, like. yeah. So that is something that you do see in the future for you, a little bit of a change of paths? Uh, I mean, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. It's something I've always been interested in. Yeah. And uh, I, I definitely feel somewhat of an obligation to do what I can to help other people in, in as, as direct a way as possible. Yeah. Uh, and that's one avenue Right. To do that. For sure. In the art environment, as I understand it, there's like a lot of players and there's a lot of moving parts, right? It's like artists, curators and all that stuff. Galleries. <clears throat> How do you feel about it as a, as a whole, as a general thing? Like, do you feel that it's fair? What would you change? What kind of things you don't agree with? Yeah, I, I have a lot of problems. With it. <laughs> I think, I mean, first and foremost, it's just way too driven by money mm-hmm. and controlled by a lot of people who are so disconnected from what it is to be an artist, what what your lifestyle is like when you're an artist. Uh, you know, collectors who are buying one work from somebody that like might change their life because they ha- now have like... $15,000 or whatever. There's just such a huge disconnect. And then the gallery takes 50% of that. Yes. How did that become the norm? How yeah. does that seem fair to anyone? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I can I can ask you that question because I have no clue. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I have I mean, no like, clue really yeah, either. Yeah. You know, I recently sat on a panel at Projet Panget talking about alternative ways of running art spaces, and I was representing casino art space. And when I said... Uh, that we don't take any percentage for sales, I heard gasps in the audience. You know, people, it seems so foreign to people. Yeah. Really, to me, I mean, I, I couldn't really imagine it doing it any other way. You know what I think it is, though? Um, I guess, like, it's the whole idea of professionalism. It's like, if you're professional, you won't do this for free. You know, like, and you need to, like, put, like, a an evaluation in money terms mm-hmm. for you to be considered serious about what you're doing because that's the currency that we live in. Yeah. You know, like get like validation. The validation sometimes here is that, unfortunately. Yeah. But from that point of view, 
you know, I haven't done anything uh-huh. legitimate at all. Uh-huh. I've never made any substantial amount of money doing this. Right. Uh, so that, let me ask you that because that's really interesting. Where do you get your validation from then? Um, mostly from my community. Yeah. And when I can see uh, people appreciating it and like in music, when I can see people moving with art, when I can see people talking, asking questions, like that is for me like why I do all of this. Yeah creating like a an ongoing discourse and like uh yeah developing a community of people yeah what were some of the ideas shared in the in projet panje about an alternative way of running an art space um well there were two uh groups well myself and then another group being represented called sunset terrace we have a pretty similar uh model <laughs> which is basically no money involved mm-hmm. it's all artist run and uh community oriented and also like fun <laughs> and like you know our openings are gatherings where we talk about the work but also parties art so often has like a sort of stuck up attitude yes. and yes. you know fuck that <laughs> yeah. yeah i can tell uh, you that from a like an outsider looking in mm-hmm. the first couple of times that I would go to a show that I didn't even know what a show was right like a, the first time that I would approach the uh, community or something it has that feeling of a uh, very exclusive kind of like feeling like this is not for everybody this is something yeah. that we only we understand and that you know that is in the say student kind of like feeling now if you go to the next step which is like a professional gallery as we call it then it's a completely different feeling, which is like, this is only professional. It's like money. You can tell that there's money involved yeah. in the shows. And you can on, feel it oh, you can there's f- money in the room. You can definitely feel it. And <laughs> Yeah, uh, I often go to openings and don't feel comfortable. Yeah. And I feel like people are looking at me like, who is this guy? Yeah. Like, Really? Yeah, sometimes. Huh. Sure. Like if I come straight from the studio or, for example, and I have like paint on my clothes or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and then it's like, this should be the one place where people aren't looking at me funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This should be my clothes. safe space. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's not always. Hmm. Sometimes it is, though. Yeah. 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 Um, so the other school of thinking of uh, those spaces was what um well there were varying points of view uh like one end of it was uh much more typically the way that you would run a gallery hand-picked artists who are viewed as important and relevant and try to sell their work take 50 percent and then others there was sort of those were the two extremes like us and that more typical approach. And then there were a couple other groups uh, that were sort of in the middle. Yeah. I talked to Jerome from uh, Soon.tw. Right. And yeah, they have an interesting model too. I mean, they not, I, I don't know exactly if they take any. I'm not sure actually. No, I don't know. Either. 
But what I do know is that they're not close to the idea of somebody coming in and asking who was the artist and like, I want to buy this. That's fine. I mean, why not, right? Yeah. It seems Which like I think that is completely fine. You know? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think they have a pretty uh, relaxed approach. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think they have a cool space. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. Why not? If it, if it happens, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of influences, how important was for you to go to art school? I think um, quite important. Yeah. It really just sort of frames your thinking in a certain way. And like, for example, like three or four of us in persons, even though we're not doing visual art, we all kind of have like a similar uh, lens through which we like are looking at things. And it kind of helps in that uh, circumstance like we kind of think about music in a more conceptual way mm. than a lot of musicians might yeah it kind of just really drills a certain way of thinking into you that's yeah. how that was my experience anyway. right what about aesthetics and like sort of like creating your taste i know that that sounds pretty pretentious but like you know what i mean like your way of thinking of yeah I mean, your contemporaries are kind of drilled into your head and like yeah. certain ideas of like what are good and bad are sort of drilled into your head. But then you, it's also drilled in your head that you should go against all of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a valuable experience. I don't definitely don't think that, in my opinion, to be a, a good artist, you have to have been to art school. but. No, Fortune. you don't think so? I don't think so, but I think that to be considered a good artist yeah. by the art world, you need to have gone to yeah. the art school. When I started doing these interviews, that was one of the questions that I would ask all the time. It's like, why is it important? Why, why? And everybody says the same thing. It's like, not so much for what you would probably get. It's a lot for how people would see you afterwards. Yeah. It's like, you know, like the validation of it again. Yeah. Like the validation of the artwork. Is really unfair in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It sort of adds to the elitism of the art world. And that's another question that I had for you leading to that, that is how important or dismissive for you is the professionalism in art. What is that idea of it? Other than having graduated from an art school, What other things an artist need to do to be considered a professional in arts? Like, what I mean is, like, do you need to, like, write really nicely about your work? Do you need to be able to speak about it? What What is all this? Both of those things. Yeah. To be considered a professional artist by the art world, you definitely need to be a fantastic writer and an incredibly articulate yeah. uh, speaker. Right. I would uh, never be an artist. <laughs> a professional artist. <laughs> um, because yeah. not only... Do you need to uh, apply for shows and make it through university talking about your art and about other people's art? You also need to be able to write for government grants, which is like a whole other specific style of writing. Yes. Um, so even if you're really good at writing about your own work in a specific way, you might not be able to get any money with that, uh, Absolutely. With that style. Um, and I know... It's like some of my good friends who are, in my opinion, fantastic visual artists who would probably never make it in that world because they're not writers also. Yeah. I'm not going to say names here, but in academia where I come from in, in the sciences, 
there are professors that if you see their research and their work and all that is not very impressive and is not you know the best thing considering in in the scientific world but they are awesome writers so they get like the million dollars grants because they can write yeah and you see the same thing in art probably definitely yeah and even in art school some students where it would be you know really good at talking about their work but then you look at it and it's like what <laughs> yeah 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 so how do you how do you level that playing field what is one idea for that i th i mean i think that's what we're trying to do with casino is you know show a wide range of artists with different academic backgrounds and different levels of experience and for a lot of people unfortunately that sort of discredits us yeah. as like a an interesting relevant art space and in fact on that panel we were discredited by some people as like uh like that's not a good way of running an interesting space like it's not mm. a good way of running your programming if you're not handpicking all of your artists because they're at the top of their game and you know but is that, is that something that you're completely or casino is that something that casino is completely against or that could be something that could happen as also part of a program of it so say like this show is going to be this type of show and the next show is going to be this other type of show i mean it's not against right like it's it's just a different avenue exactly yeah yeah you can cohabit the same space i guess yeah and that's that's exactly what we're doing yeah yeah some we've had artists that we've uh, specifically asked to come and do a show um from out of town even and then you know like i was talking about before chuck from across the alley yeah. uh so And that's, I think, important because it's providing the people that come to our space with a wide variety of exactly. uh, of work to be that they're exposed to. Exactly, and because if not, it becomes what you were saying before of like that oneness, right? Yeah, that that same thing. And I see that sometimes with like even young gallerists who are attempting to run the so-called alternative art space but really they're just using the same model mm -hmm. as the bigger galleries but operating on a smaller scale yeah which is again uh you gotta do what you gotta do but i mean it's a small community and i guess like any attempts to expose it and to exhibit is welcome you know whatever your angle is towards it i mean sure i mean you may or may not agree but At the end of the day, you do agree with the fact that art should be shown. Yeah. In any way. Yeah. You know? That's why I was asking all these questions about what they say about like this, the alternative way of running these, you know, spaces. Because the fact that you have a different model immediately after disqualifies you as a, as a yeah. serious. I guess, uh, like, in, in some people's opinion, if you're not showing the best, mm -hmm. uh, like, top notch, relevant according to art according to yeah that's yeah that's that's um, exactly the thing but yeah. according to a lot of people yeah i guess yeah i mean and uh it's counterproductive or like maybe you're contributing to like mm. oversaturation mm. or something oversaturation yeah yeah wow so it's like too much art yeah huh or the, which is definitely a thing oh yeah especially in music tell me about it 
Well, <laughs> um, okay, okay. Especially in music, I understand it, but in contemporary art, yeah, maybe maybe less so in contemporary yeah. art. I guess I was more thinking about music. Yeah, so there's just too much of it. Yeah, well, just like with the access to technology, yeah, and yeah, they're like there's somebody again making yeah podcasts, <laughs> podcasts, but like electronic yeah, music yeah, and yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like so much information, so much music, yeah, so many podcasts, too many. Um, normally, I ask my guests if they could share a story with us, and I was wondering if you have one for us. I have one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not that funny of a story. It's not funny. <laughs> um, I mean, it's maybe a little funny. So, um, when Ma Collective had our show at Parisian Laundry, um, that was like the biggest show that we did as a collective and probably the biggest show that I've been a part of uh, as an artist. And uh, we spent every last cent we had on that show not to mention like totally gave ourselves to that it was intense our studio the most of the show was made of plaster our studio was like completely covered in plaster dust like everywhere and we also lived there so this is not good <laughs> and um i was going tree planting for for work uh shortly after our opening, actually the day after our opening. And months before I had purchased my plane ticket to go to BC where I was tree planting. So we were at this opening and we're feeling, you know, glorious like and triumphant, like we did it, we're happy with the result, we're like getting feedback and, you know, feeling really great, which, you know, is like what you do it for in a way yeah. that opening and everyone seeing it seeing what you've been locked away doing for months and months so the next day I flew to Vancouver where I arrived uh, at night like nine o'clock at night and uh, I didn't have any money mm -hmm. like actually zero <laughs> Uh, because I was catching a bus the next morning, uh, my plan was to go to this party where I knew my friend was going to be and I was going to stay at my friend's house after I met up with them at this party. So I start making my way downtown. How? Uh, I took a bus. Uh -huh. um, my phone died and I couldn't find the party. <laughs> And so there I was, downtown Vancouver, near the bus station, which is pretty close to like the Maine and Hastings area, like the yeah. rough part of town. And uh, I just had to sleep on the street. And <laughs> that for me is like sort of a pretty good representation of like the drastic yeah. extremes of uh, choosing to live as an artist. It was like such drastic uh, culture shock, kind uh -huh. of. Yeah. And that night, 
it was fine. I slept on the street. The only people that bugged me were other homeless people who were asking if I was okay. They asked you if you were okay? Yeah, yeah. It was actually a very uh, heartwarming and sort of reassuring experience. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I can relate to them more than I can relate to, like, the suits singing dollar signs at, like, a, an opening. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Sort of, like, one day opening the show and being, like, on the top of the world. Next day. Next day, sleeping. Sleeping on the street. But, like, where exactly in the street? Like, you, you in the bus station? No, I was, uh, they wouldn't let me in the bus station overnight. Yeah. So I was, like, across the street, found a little, uh... Yeah. A little shelter thing. Yeah. Just like literally on the side of the sidewalk. But then the day after that, I had got my bus, which I had booked months before as well, and uh, was tree planting in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which was very intense. Yeah, like physically intense? Yeah, I mean, I did that job for many years, but just having uh, gone from yeah. 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 the opening to sleeping on the street to being in northern BC yeah. by myself in the middle of a clear cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, you say it in a way that is like, sure, I mean, that happened and that nothing really, I mean, because <laughs> honestly, if, if I would have been in that situation, I would have done so many things to like avoid that probably. I don't know why, just because, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you said like, I'm going to take it, fuck it. Yeah, and I'm well, gonna do it, and nothing, nothing's gonna happen. That's kind of also like an attitude towards probably art too. So like, this is my life. And I chose this. Yeah, I chose to like you know, like as you said before, rough it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of roughing it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's interesting. Well, I want to thank you for having this uh, conversation with me. I really yeah, appreciate thank it. You. Okay, that was me and Jackson Darby on April of 2017. We chatted a few months later and he told me that his interview project has evolved to starting a record label called Personal Records. Their first release will be a 7-inch record by Guy Madonna and a compilation of all experimental Hamilton-based musicians as a fundraiser for Sasha, which is a center for survivors of sexual assault in Hamilton. All right. That's it for this episode. I hope you're having a great beginning of the new year and that it continues to be a productive and positive year for everyone. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Mark Cerys Wilson. Mixing and mastering was done by Milton Matthew. The visual design that you can see in our Instagram account was done by Victor Garibay. In the next episode, I will be having a very interesting conversation with the director of Parisian Laundry, Megan Bradley. In it, we'll explore questions that in the arts have not a clear answer, like how to price artworks. You definitely look at like where an artist was, uh -huh. what things they have accomplished um, since, you know, if they were at a certain price point and then it's been a couple of years and there was a acquisition, few acquisitions by really important institutions, then at that point you might be like, okay, I think it's time for a hike. Or here's another tough one for Megan. Why people collect? <laughs> <laughs> Is that hard? Oh, man. Um, 
Why do people collect? The answer to that is coming in episode 9 of Into This Podcast. Don't miss it. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. <laughs>